Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them, would you, to two places, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 3 in a Bible study that I've entitled The Glorious Vicarious Atonement. The Glorious Vicarious Atonement. Now remember the theme of Peter's first letter is strength through suffering. We have a group of believers that are facing the hardest, most difficult trial that they've ever faced in their life. And it wasn't just one or two here. It was the entirety of church of the church at the time under the Roman government. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Peter writes to Christians to encourage them and to remind them of the faithfulness of God. To acknowledge that yes, things are hard. Of course they are. But the Lord is faithful, and he'll strengthen you. And for the believers in the first century, I mean, this was not just inconvenience. This wasn't just a life of inconvenience. They, they weren't just experiencing a few things that they lost this. or they No, they were living with the threat of losing their lives. They had everything lost. They, they, were, they lost their livelihood, their homes. They're on the run, being blamed for the destruction of Rome, and they had nothing to do with it. And I think they're not unlike our brothers and sisters today in Sudan or in China or Indonesia, paying the price for being a Christian sometimes uh, to the point of death. And that is part of persecution, losing our lives for the sake of the gospel. And I, I think it's worth reminding that perspective is everything. Our perspective of the situations in our lives is everything. If we have the right perspective, that helps us along the journey. But if we have the wrong perspective, it hurts us and makes things worse. We have to ask ourselves, how do we currently see this? What angle are we taking? If we view suffering only in light of ourselves and how it affects us, it can be overwhelming. It can be oppressive. It can be lonely. But if we view our suffering in light of the suffering that is shared with the church at large, if we can view our suffering in light of the purposes and plans of God, if we can view our, our suffering in light of eternity and our newfound relationship with Jesus, then we can grow through it and we can mature through it and our lives can be an encouragement to others as we persevere and endure. Even today, you don't have to turn there with me, but in Hebrews chapter 10, I was reminded of this verse, and it's so important. Uh, it's such a, a valuable encouragement to us where we're reminded, I think it might have been Hebrews chapter 12, um, but it's somewhere in the Bible where it says that you have need of endurance. And isn't that true? You have need of endurance so that when you do the will of God, you'll have something to be blessed. You'll be blessed. And then somebody find it for me real quick, real quick. Is it 10 what? 36? Therefore do not cast your confidence, which is great reward. Verse 36, chapter 10, thank you. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And here's the promise. For yet a little while, 
and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. And now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And look what he says in verse 39. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. And it's interesting that God would put us in two different books, written to two different groups at two different times in, in church history of suffering Christians. And we would be reminded week after week after week, study after study, devo after devo of the need to abide in Christ and draw our strength and resources from his abundant resources. Because the Bible is filled with real life, down to earth men and women who suffered greatly for their faith. Greatly. I asked you to open to 2 Corinthians chapter four. Notice with me in verse seven. We just consider a few things that Paul would let us into the inside of his life of what he went through for the gospel. Exactly what was predicted in Acts chapter nine when Jesus revealed to him, I'm gonna tell him a lot of things he's gonna suffer for my namesake. Suffering is part of the package. Anyone that desires to live a godly life will suffer. Notice what he goes through. He says in verse seven, but we have this treasure, this is 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not us. We are hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live, notice verse 11, are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. But since we have the same spirit of faith according to what was written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. And then he summarizes it in verse 16. Therefore, because our suffering matters, because we go through it together, because it's not wasted, because we've got to the edge so many times and God showed up, we got to the edge so many times and God delivered us, because we're still standing, because I'm still writing, because I'm still serving, because the enduring power, all that, because therefore we don't lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, the inward man's being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us. And so many of you have this marked in your Bible already. If you don't, mark it. Suffering works for us, not against us. It works to develop us. Suffering is not intended, trials are not intended to destroy you. Trials are intended to destroy your flesh and draw you into a deeper relationship. So he says, look, this is working for us. We're becoming better. It's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, verse 18, because we, now here's the perspective. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things that are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I taught through this one not too long ago. Uh, I would encourage you, if this is your life right now, go to the app, Go to the website. You guys already online, you know how to find it. Listening on the radio right now and go through this, these, these verses, these, this truths, those Bible studies on the app. I know it'll encourage you. 
God wants you to have the right perspective. Let me also encourage you, pick up a copy of the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's in the public domain now, so there's free PDFs everywhere. Pick up a PDF of Fox's Book of Martyrs and listen to what happened and read about what happened to the first century believers. That's a book that kind of picks up in the first century of the believers, including some traditional accounts of how the disciples, how the apostles died and were killed for the martyred for their faith. I also want to recommend to you, uh, there are a couple of books, I don't know if they're in print anymore, but I'm sure you can get them used, Jesus Freaks 1 and 2. Jesus Freaks 1 and 2. There's two different volumes of that, and those are more modern day stories of martyrs and those that have lost their lives for the faith. It'll put your life in perspective. And then I also want to recommend to you two books by a man by the name of Tom Doyle, One is called Killing Christians, and another is entitled Standing in the Fire. And I mean, it'll give you perspective. It'll show you the reality of what our brothers and sisters are going through throughout the world. It might stir your faith. It might well up in you that courage and endurance that's needed, because the right perspective will help you even in your current trial. Well, with all that in mind, come with us now to 1 Peter because this one verse, we're going to pause on this one verse and then we'll pick up and cover some more next time. But this one verse is one we just can't skip over. We need to allow it to say what it says because it gives us the greatest perspective on our own suffering. So pick up with me in verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The supreme example of suffering, Peter says, to a suffering group of Christians is Jesus. His suffering eclipses all of our sufferings combined. And without the suffering of Jesus, we wouldn't have any. But because he suffered, we suffer as his followers. So we deal with the things in the world because of sin. You know, we suffer because of our sin. We suffer because of the sins of others. But there's an added layer of suffering that comes to you and me because of our allegiance to Jesus. We suffer because of our commitment to Jesus. There is greater suffering. Jesus said it would be so. In John chapter 16, verse 33, let me read it to you from the New Living. It says, I've told you, Jesus says, I've told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You may have memorized it in this world you have, you'll have tribulation but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. You'll have many trials and sorrows. You will have many trials and sorrows, Jesus told us. In in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, also let me read it to you from the New Living. It says, they strengthen the brethren, they encourage them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, The pathway of that leads to life includes suffering. It's not a surprise to us. Even in Peter, if you want to turn a page to chapter five, verse nine, Peter says, 
in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, he says, resist him, speaking of the devil, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But when we come to verse 18, Peter's sharing much more with us than just the temporary sufferings we experience. He's speaking not only of Jesus being beaten, uh, Jesus being killed in the flesh, but this is a significant spiritual truth for your life and mine. In verse 18, the fisherman Peter is giving, taking us to the highlands of theology. And he's teaching us that Jesus' suffering had a spiritual significance. The first thing I want you to notice is, is in verse 18 there in the beginning, it says, for Christ also suffered, you want to mark the word once. He suffered once, just one time. The suffering is singular when it comes to the issue of your sin and mine. Remember, as we learned just this weekend, we were reminded that on the cross, Jesus declared, it is finished. He didn't say he was finished. He said, it is finished. And then we looked at that. Well, what was finished? Well, the work of redemption was finished. The price, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that work is completed and finished. He suffered once, and it's so important because this is one of the clearest, most wonderful verses on the cross of Jesus Christ in all the Bible. He suffered once, notice the next word, for, one time, for sins. And then notice, who is the recipient? The unjust. Jesus, the just, suffering once for sins of the unjust. The just in exchange for the unjust. And the purpose that he might bring us to God. It says he was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is never to be repeated ever again. Never. It will never be repeated, neither does it need to be repeated, because it is finished. It's so powerful, and it's wonderful. The reason why it's important to emphasize the word once is because many of you either came out of the Roman Catholic Church or still are connected in some way by family or friends to Roman Catholicism, and this one verse in all the Bible this one verse that is packed with so much truth undermines the false teachings that say Jesus is to continually be sacrificed through the mass service on Sunday. That the mass, and some of you may already know this, but the mass is a re-crucifying of Jesus at the hands of the priest for the sins of the people. The Bible says no. The Bible says no. Jesus died how many times, church? Once. One time. He's never to die again. He died once for sins, the just for the unjust. It's over. It's finished. Your salvation is secure. When, when we celebrate communion together, we celebrate communion looking back on a completed, finished work. When we take of the elements together, as significant and as mysterious as they are, as we come together in unity as a church and we come together in unity with the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, communion is symbolic as we look back on the finished work. It is not a breaking again of the bread so that mysteriously it becomes the body in your mouth. 
No, it is simply a wafer or a piece of bread because it points back to the bread, remember, that Jesus broke and gave, which also was symbolic. They literally ate the bread that he gave them, which was symbolic of what? The crucifixion that was to come, his broken body. So even the bread that was in Jesus' hands was symbolic. When he says, take, eat, this is my body, it didn't grow on his body, it was still bread. And he broke the bread and he passed the bread and it was still bread. Same with the cup. The cup did not become the blood of Jesus Christ when he handed the cup to those at the seating, reclining with him at the Passover meal. It was still wine in his hand and it was still wine when it was passed along. It did not become blood. It hadn't been shed yet. So even in the hands of Jesus, the elements were symbolic. And so when we look back upon them, the bread speaks of the broken body of Jesus that died once for sins. The cup speaks of Jesus' blood spilled once for us. We look back and enjoy the blessing of knowing that we are saved. Not that we hope to be saved. Not that we hope one day we'll make it. Not that one day we hope we will not wait in a waiting period in purgatory to find out if we'll make it out of there. The work of Jesus Christ is finished. And the reason I emphasize it on this particular verse is not to bring any offense to our friends that may be in Roman Catholicism, but rather knowing this will go out on the radio all over the country, knowing people are listening right now, I'm just asking you to put down your religious teachings and let the Bible give you freedom in Christ. Let God, let God free you from empty religion. Let God free you with the truth. You don't have to live in fear or under the weight of guilt your whole life. Jesus has forgiven you of your sins. And if you repent of your sins today, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can know that you know that you know you are saved because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, not because you deserve it, right? You know what you deserve. I know what I deserve. So we don't want to pass over a simple verse like this. And I would encourage you, search the scriptures. Prove me wrong from the Bible. But I know that that's not possible because we're just simply reading one verse out of the Bible. It's what it says right here. You don't have to wait till you face God to know that you're saved. <laughs> you can know that today. Isn't that a tragic way to live your life? I don't think so. I don't know. I'm not sure. Did I do enough? You, re, you live your whole life. And, and that, what, what that's called is a works-based relationship with God. And it places the emphasis of your salvation on your works. God never intended that. What works could we possibly offer to God that would merit the forgiveness of our sins? All of our works, the Bible speaks, are like filthy rags. They don't measure up to anything, to the holy and righteous standard of God. So we're not saved by our works. We're saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ. The finished work. A constant enemy of your assurance is doubt and unbelief. Doubt and unbelief keep a believer wandering, wondering, and weak. Doubting literally is, is, doubting is defined as this, being uncertain unsure, distrustful, and disbelieving, and or it can also mean lacking conviction. So I just want to take that word distrustful for a second. There are relationships we have in the world that involves a distrust, 
you know, with another person. Maybe we've been hurt, we've been burned. But when you doubt God, it's easier to say I doubt God because that's an easier word to live. But when you doubt the promises of God, when I doubt God himself, I don't trust him. I'm not living in faith and trusting God. And I don't know how many of us would be willing to say, yeah, I'm just living in a time right now where I don't trust God. I don't really believe his promises. Rather than choosing to trust him in the moment, moment by moment. Sometimes we'll even doubt our own salvation. And I think that the thing about doubting is it's not like we want to live that way. It's not like we like it. (laughs) But it is a part of the human condition. The, the truth about doubt is, number one, it's not like we always, that, like we really want to, but, but a greater truth about doubt is that you really don't need to. We don't really need to choose to live by, by, by a lack of faith or doubt or just always living in that realm. I'm not sure and I'm not. Like we can take the insurities and just lay them before the Lord. Like the Bible says, you know, we can cast our cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. Faith is what brought you into his family and faith will keep you to the end. <laughs> and he, we learned earlier in chapter one that we are kept by the power of God. It's sad. It's sad to me as a pastor and also as a fellow believer. It grieves me because I know many churches, they live and teach in such a legalistic way that they keep people doubting their whole life whether they're saved. And they just don't, really want to give and allow the Holy Spirit to give that assurance. So they, they put guilt trips and they teach things where if you didn't do it this and, and then you like, well, did I do it? You say, well, you did it, but you didn't do it right. Well, who determines who do, does it right? We determine. And then your whole relationship then is in relationship to leaders, to pastors, to ter- teachings of churches and even so-called churches. In order to control their congregation, The pastor is trained how to keep people guessing and depending on man. But Jesus desires and commands that our trust be in him alone. The object of our faith is not a human being, not a teacher, not a pastor, not a priest, not a church movement. Our trust is to be in a person, the risen and powerful Jesus Christ. And verse 18 is so powerful and and, and plain for us. And in my title of the message, remember I used the word vicarious. I want to teach you that word because it's an important theological word, but it's not as hard as it sounds like most theological words. Vicarious is a beautiful word. I want you to learn it and keep it and just start talking. You know, if you want to talk to people about the atonement of Christ, you want to talk to people about the blood of Jesus Christ, you, you get into that conversation, you can say, well, the sacrifice of Jesus was vicarious. And perhaps they know what it means, and perhaps they don't. But this definition is very simple. Vicarious means this, in place of. That's all it means. In place of. And you can personalize that. You could say the vicarious atonement of Jesus, his death and resurrection, was in place of me. And that's what that word just for unjust, that's another way of saying in place of. And he even identifies them. The just, the perfect one, died for us imperfect ones. It was vicarious. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, listen. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Another verse of vicarious atonement. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. He gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age 
according to the will of God and the Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Who gave himself for us, speaking of Jesus, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. There is no other way to salvation than through Jesus Christ. He alone is your vicarious substitute. Let's just be clear here. We, in that verse, verse 18, are the unjust. We're the unjust. Jesus is the just. So because of that, he gave his life for us. Or even more so, he gave his life for you. And it it draws out of us to think of what Jesus has done for us far more than just a religious response. Just a desire to go through the motions. It draws out from us a true dedication of our lives to fulfill his high calling for us. And there is no other way. It's his perfect life for our imperfect life. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, There is salvation, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus came into this world not just to be born in Bethlehem and assume humanity, not just to show us how to live, not just to relieve the pain and suffering of a few thousand people, not just to sympathize and empathize with us, He he came into this world to suffer, to bleed and die, to be buried, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The plan of God involved this glorious exchange, his life for yours. That's why the Bible declares to us that in, in salvation, what we are new creations in Christ, old things have passed away, behold, all things become new. That's the power that you have to walk away from addiction. That's the power you have to be the wife that God wants you to be, to be the husband. That's the power that God has to give you strength to step out in faith, to obey, to give sacrificially, to to approach a stranger and ask how you might serve them. That's the kind of power that gives, that's the kind of work that God wants to do in your life that will take you and now you have two identities as a newborn believer. You have the old you, apart from Christ, and the new you in Christ. This one verse, what Jesus did for us, radically changes lives. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can change you. Only Jesus can rescue you. And you really could offer to me very, some of you right now listening, you could offer to me the things that you have tried that have not worked, to get you to the place where your heart longs to be. You have tried. And some people will even say, well, you know, I've tried Christianity. Well, you're almost there. You're almost there. You're so close by trying Christianity. You got right to the edge. And now I want to invite you, try dying to yourself and submit your life to Jesus. Because everyone that has ever followed what the Bible has said 
and submitted their life by faith can testify to the supreme power of God that dwells in them and their new creations in Christ. If you're a new creation in Christ in the room today, just say amen. Ready? One, two, three. Amen. Amen. So you're surrounded by people. And I'm sure uh, if some of you had a pretty crazy past that God delivered you from, say amen to that. One, two, three. So almost everybody. (laughs) Think of that. Some of you were born in a Christian home. You know the power of God. You know how that is manifest in your life. God kept you from things. For most of us, we got delivered from bad, sinful decisions and desires and consequences. But if you grew up in a Christian home, it's almost like you had a greater, you, you had a greater battle to have to deal with. But the power of God kept you from. We got delivered out of, you got kept from. It's the same power. And we all end up in the same place. We're going to end up with the Bema seat of Christ. There will be rewards given. And what will we do with our rewards? Toss them right back at the feet of Jesus. It's like, thank you, Lord. You're so good for what you've done to us and what you are and who you are. It all makes sense. The plan of God is a glorious exchange. Jesus taking our place. All of our guilt and shame and sin, all of the suffering that is in the world, all of our pain and problems will be transferred to him. And all of his holiness and righteousness and goodness and acceptance would be transferred to us. (laughs) Who got the better deal? (laughs) What God has done in our lives. And although Jesus, Peter says, although Jesus was put to death in the flesh, he was quickened by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was active in all phases of the life of Jesus. According to Matthew chapter 1 verse 16, the Holy Spirit conceived him. According to Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, Jesus was. He offered himself without spot unto God in his death through the eternal spirit, Hebrews 9, chapter chapter 9, verse 14. He was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 8, verse 11. And now Peter affirms here the active work of the Holy Spirit in the Lord's resurrection. He was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive by the Spirit. Jesus was sinless. And once he had paid the penalty of our sin, death had no more claim upon him. It was not even able to corrupt his body in the tomb. Acts chapter 2, verse 27. And why would we pause? Sometimes we pause at one verse. Sometimes we pause at studying one word. And I'll tell you why we paused here. And the timing of this was magnificent. This wasn't planned. But what what a study to have right after we celebrate Easter. Why would we pause on just one verse? Why would we throw out some theological words and, and because I, you know, I want you to learn these words because they're not as hard as they sound. People can make the Bible so difficult to understand, but it's actually not that hard to understand. And even if I simplified this and I had to give it as an, in an elevator, you know, one of those elevator speeches, I would have said, Hey man, you're messed up. Jesus came to die for you. And he took, he, if you give your life to him, then he will take all your guilt and shame and forgive you right now. Do you want to be safe? And I would say that to you today. You can listen to the 40-minute message version or the 40-second version, but they're both the same. God loves you. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. I mean, if you just sit here and allow this one verse to penetrate, for me, it's humbling. This is a humbling truth. Because I can recall, unfortunately, what God saved me out of. I remember the kind of person I was. I remember people around me going, I don't know about that guy. I don't think he's going to make it. I don't think he's going to live very long. And certainly any high aspirations for 
my life. But you know, I get to, I get to have prayer time. I get to look people in the eye and I, I, I get to say it after service at times or on the radio or whatever. I get to say, look me in the eye. I just want you to see me for a second. Just don't see me as Pastor Ed. Don't, just want you to look me in the eye. Just see me as a brother. And I want you to know God can save people like me. And if God can save people like me, then the person we're praying for right now, God can save them too. And he'll pursue them too. And we don't only have, we don't only have the biblical truth, but we also, we also live it out. And if we allow it to speak to us, it's going to humble us. It's going to break us. It's going to bring us to the point of great worship and adoration. And that's where we're left here. You know, we're going to get into a controversial passage after this, but I wanted to pause from the controversy Uh, And you can read ahead and we'll be there next time. But we'll get into a controversial passage and I'll explain it to you and help you understand it. But before we, you know, a lot of people like to live in the controversy of life, controversy of the Bible, controversy of the day. I prefer to live in the humble adoration of God. I just want to train you and disciple us. Like, let's, let's worship God. We'll get to the difficulty soon enough. But these are things, but one last thing. These are things This is what Peter decided to tell a group of believers that are suffering the worst in their entire life. What he wanted to remind them is, hey, don't forget the great exchange. Don't forget what Jesus, you don't need to worry about religion and all those, like when Jesus saved you, you are saved. And you're gonna make it through. And if you don't make it through this suffering, you're gonna make it to heaven. You're gonna be in the presence of Jesus. You know, if you do make, if the outward body's perishing, the inward man's being renewed day by day, if, if you don't make it with the outward man perishes, you're going to be in the presence of the Lord. How do you stop a person like that? How do you stop a person that says, you know what? And I think in one of those books, one of the martyrs said, hey, you know, you, he, he says something like this. You can't kill me because I've died already. How do you stop a person like that with the gospel? You don't. And when you're in that place of trusting in the Lord and you're in that place of like laying, casting your cares and concerns and your doubts before him, God will meet you there and he'll develop in you a worshipful heart. Even as we're going to sing tonight, sweet, before we leave, just a worshipful heart for the Lord to minister to us. So Father, thank you for this truth, this one verse that just speaks to our hearts, God, and ministers to our soul. We, we could spend countless hours studying the atonement, studying the vicarious atonement, we could spend countless hours um, digging in and what is this in the Greek and the Hebrew and all, all of the depth that you provide in your scriptures. Thank you for that. But tonight, in our Bible study, we just want to be in awe of you, Lord. We want to consider what you're doing in our life, how you're working in and through us, what your plan and purpose for our life is, Lord. And we... Truly, our heart of hearts don't want to doubt you, but we do. Would you forgive us for that, Lord? I know I doubt a lot, and I don't want to, but, and it's to think that I distrust you, Lord, for all that you've done, and I'm just grateful for your grace and your mercy in my life, and just pour that over our church. You know, even when I think of Thomas, whether they call him doubter or whatever, it doesn't matter. You met him and said, go ahead and touch me if you don't believe. Go ahead, you give us more. Go ahead. I know you're in a wavering place right now, but I'll give you more. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. And may we just be stirred up to worship and adore you in all that you're wanting to accomplish in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.